You're listening to Tiger's Eye, episode 22. On our voyage home, I speak to no one. I have only myself and time to reflect on the long journey I have traveled that brought me to this point. Lulled into deep thought by the endlessly creaking timbers, I go back far beyond my pursuit of Frauana. It is yesterday. I am a cub. I sit beside Rao and Lamal, Lauer, Gar, and Yao as we watch our shaman, Brask, Tell us about how our world came into being. He is immense and white, with deep, green eyes and night-black stripes. We are all fixed on what he is saying as it is partitioned out into short vignettes, leaving large gaps of description. I am forced to take the small elements he gives me and recombine them into more elaborate and evocative stories for my own head. He tells us of the seven... And while I knew their names before, being able to flesh out their mythology now takes on a truly engrossing aspect. I feel closer to them. They are real, at last. I follow Brask in the days afterward and press him for further detail. He proceeds, with much determination and time investment on my part, to tell me everything he knows about the Seven. Thus forearmed... I take my story to the other cubs and tell them I am now possessed of the secrets known only to shaman. They scoff at what they perceive as my arrogance, but after a little elaboration, they realize how well-founded this pride truly is, and I paint for them stories and words always holding back the more enticing elements. They are to be used sparingly, as flavoring, leaving my audience craving more. Searching for her lover... The leopard of water headed north, never stopping and crying bitterly cold tears as she went. So today, if you were to travel in her paw steps, you would find the frozen mountains that rise up and up the further you go, until you can reach the basin where she came to rest for a time and cried out a lake of purest ice. It was while she lay there, her heart breaking, that the fire lion took pity on her and spoke with air cheetah, Dark Panther, the Earth Jaguar, and the Tiger of Light. The five of them mixed their magics together and lit the Fire Lion's tail with all of their signature colors. As the Leopard of Water looked up, she saw dazzling lights dance across the sky to bring her cheer and hope in her darkest hour. She called out to the Fire Lion to come down, and as he stood beside her, his warmth melted her heart, and she knew who she was once more. As I reach this point in the story, I am aware of Brask, quietly watching me from some way back. Panic courses through me, my fur bristles as I turn, my head bowed in respect as he beckons me over. He could interpret this betrayal of his teachings conveyed in trust as an act of deliberate self-aggrandizing, or worse, the exploitative deeds of a faithless one, the kind to be shunned and banished. 
A silence stands between the two of us as I await punishment. Instead, he asks if I would like to receive further training. I jump at the chance and agree right there to become his apprentice. The seven open up for me like a series of delicate, beautiful flowers. I earnestly offer my dedication and learn to truly love them. Even Dark Panther, whose actions frighten our people the most. It is one thing to accept death as a natural part of life, quite another to embrace it and separate away my compassion and personal feelings from this essential matter. When her mother, Aisha, dies, Prow comes to me for sympathy, affection, and guidance. As she buries her head into my shoulder and shakes with weeping, I feel my own heart breaking on her behalf, and suddenly these sensibilities do not seem as achievable or natural. I scold myself inside for my weakness. How can I be of use to the tribe if I am not above their own emotional outbursts? I ask this of Brask later, and he confides that we do not have to be above our families. We must simply be there to support them. I'm confused by this, and begin to suspect he may not be the best of teachers. Perhaps it would be better to follow my own inclinations. My mentor and I journey to the houses under the earth. These take many nights to reach, and are filled with the decaying remnants of the long yesterday. Prow and Gar ask to come with us, but they are not shaman. All the same, I wish I had their adventurous spirit. I confess I am unsettled, and at times actively frightened by what we find. In a burial chamber, Brask holds up his torch to the walls to show me marching armies of demons carved into the flagstones. They are smaller than cats, and described through glyphs as having pale skin and thin, straight bodies with no fur aside from that adorning their heads. They are physically weaker than us, but bring with them weapons of unknown materials that spew forth unholy fire. See, all of this happened a long time ago. We've not seen their kind in our lands for eons. But stories tell of their eventual return, and how when that occurs, our world is going to be transformed. By the darkest of hells, why have you not told us this story before? The obvious nightmares. Then how can this be prevented? Did you think I brought you here to answer that question? These are prophecies, kid. If you try to prevent them, you're just going to bring them into being all the faster. That cannot be true. Surely these are warnings, not absolute certainties. No. No, I will not accept this. I choose vigilance over surrender. Let me ask you a question. Do you care about your family? Of course. You want them to be protected? Absolutely. Then you have to remember this moment, son. Change is going to come eventually. No matter how hard we fight it. What matters is how we act. In the face of that inevitability. You speak of despair and submission. If these demons appeared at our borders tomorrow, I would rouse an army to destroy them. No, see, look at this long line of cats being mown down. 
They were probably thinking the same thing and they still lost. When you're helping to lead, you have to choose your battles carefully. Talk to your chief. Feel what the tribe around you are feeling. Some conflicts cannot be won. Then I will find a way to prevent the conflicts before they occur. I have skill and courage enough to do that. Well, that's a better answer. Now come on, let's get out of here. I have to show you how to build a usable shelter out of a hollowed out log. I swear to myself, then and there, that if I ever lay eyes upon a creature such as this, it will not live to see its cursed kind again. A long time after, when I am nearing maturity, Brask and I sit together, breathing deeply and slowly, communing with the Seven, under whose watchful eyes we are blessed. My mentor tells me to extend myself through the veil of the other world in which we now walk, and over into the wandering ibex nearby. You have to forget that you are a tiger, and that doesn't matter anymore. Right now you're an ibex, when he understands that too, he's gonna move with you in agreement. I softly tread inside the mind of the ibex. It is an uncomplicated beast, a puzzle for me to solve. His mind throws out plain dealing instinct, exemplified in just three simple feelings. Walk, eat, mate. I recognize them in myself and express a perfect mirror of his urging in my legs, my mouth, and my loins, until we are of a single mind. In one brief moment I tell him the story of the world, one in which everything is as it should be. When his doubt arises, I push it back down and remind him again that things have always been like this. I have always been here. Slowly. He begins to walk with my steps. Brask and I wander the moonlit glades together as ibex, crawl the damp undergrowth as slithering mambas, swim the busy rivers as arapaima, and rise above the canopy as scarlet macaws. All beasts are alike. They all require variations on the instincts of the ibex. The puzzle merely grows more complex the more intelligence and will they possess. Glide, hunt, hide, swim, soar, eat, mate. I feel all of these very strongly with them, and find after I have journeyed a while in their bodies that I bound home with all kinds of voracious appetites. One yesterday we spot a hunting party of jaguars. We sit on branches high above them, inhabiting the bodies of toucans. These are our enemies. They are close to our territory. I do not ask permission for what I attempt next, for I know my mentor will discourage it. I begin to tread away from my bird and towards the mind of the largest jaguar. I push against it, and as I claw my way partially inside and am engulfed in a whirlwind of thoughts and emotions far more intense and overwhelming than those of regular animals. I lurch back in pain and confusion and spun around now far from my toucan, the 
I see the jaguar is looking about in fury and confusion. He felt me trying to gain entry and now searches for a shaman, alerting his companions. I reach up and find a flock of toucans, but they are moving too fast to get a beat on just one. I realize I have attached myself to several at once and can partially steer their movements together, breaking away from the flock and diving down towards the jaguars, reveling in the new thrill of controlling a group. The cat's eyes widen in fear and some dive for cover. The first, who I attempted to puppeteer, stands his ground and hurls his spear towards me and my flock. I feel its impact sharply in the pain as several birds drop away. With the remaining few, I swoop in to peck at the jaguar. A sharp tug hauls me backwards, yanking me out of the birds and flailing through the shadowy otherworld forest. Time slows. I feel like I've been drifting backwards like this forever. Then Brask appears in a flash of white and takes hold of me, drawing me down back into my body. I gasp great lungfuls of air and the world comes back into view. In the far distance, I can just make out the angry roaring of the jaguars. My mentor checks to see that I am alive and functioning, and then beats me senseless with his stick. You total jackass, wretched, cruel cat! I'm sorry! That wasn't the act of someone in touch with the Seven. That was just arrogant spite. I am sorry. You've made the jaguars violent and mistrustful, and you allowed the wasteful slaughter of several living creatures in doing so. It's shameful behavior, and I should cast you out. I will not do it again, I swear. You feel afraid right now? Hmm? Your heart's pounding? Yes. That's the taste of death. Bitter, isn't it? Yes. Too far. No more of that. We ride in the bodies of simple beasts and we steer them, but not to their deaths. And we sure as hell don't try to steer an intelligent cat. But can we? Is it possible? You're not listening, are you? You don't get why this is not acceptable. No, I... I understand. We shouldn't. Not unless we want to be cursed outsiders. Tribeless. Shaman. That sort of power should not be explored. Nothing good can come of it. You stick to beasts. Ride them, but not to death. I understand. And don't tell anyone about this, or we're both in serious trouble. From this moment on, the bond between us has been badly damaged. Brask becomes distant as time draws on. He keeps his teachings short. I assist him with his tasks and win some approval from the tribe, especially as a storyteller. My father, at least, appears proud of my growing standing, as do his three wives. My siblings are, after all, fish catchers and net weavers. I am a shaman, a role that commands respect. Then, one yesterday, I awake to find Brask gathering together his possessions into a traveling bag. This is his spirit walk calling him onward. 
Well, boy, you know everything I know now. I'm hitting the road. Where are you headed? That I shan't say. Can't have you following me. So I guess you know everything but that. But you're not coming back this time, are you? This is it. Maybe I'll find somewhere in need of what I can do. Maybe I'll learn something new. Maybe I'll be back. It's going to be nice not knowing. I aid him until his pack is suitably full, and we stand, facing one another in the quiet, as we did long ago. Lead them. Until you return? Until someone better than you comes along. That's what I did. And with that, he is gone. He slinks from Durga village without a word, and I wait an age. My gut crawling with snakes, before emerging to tell the tigers that I am their new shaman. As I walk among the cats and feel their paws touch my shoulders reassuringly, I realize with sharp urgency how much they need my guidance. I see fear in many eyes at the passing of Brask, but relief that I have taken his role so readily. I will protect them and stand at the gateway between Rama's world of earth and water and the other world of intangible spirit. The same as every shaman has done for every yesterday, stretching back to our first steps up onto two legs. Life becomes easier and harder at once. Brask's house becomes my house, and his bed becomes my bed. I seek to fill it soon enough and take three wives. The first is Nos, the remaining wife of Brask, who is considerably older than I, but warm and attentive, and gladly permitted to stay and carry out her wifely duties with her mate's successor. The second is Sashal, who is learned and hard-working. Perhaps not the most riveting of company, but earnest and compassionate nonetheless. For the third, in a fit of fancy, I seek someone who challenges me. Someone who will not simply comply with my every whim. Someone who excites me. I choose my cubhood friend, Prawana. Prow is different to the other two. She agrees to marry me immediately, but does not seem comfortable sharing me with the others. I tell her that time will amend these feelings of jealousy, and our passion is not diminished by this conflict. The nights we spend together make our bond strong. We save one another's lives in battle. She shows interest in my magics. Yet, something about her remains secretive and separate, a place I cannot venture. I talk to her father, but he is content to simply accept this borderline behind which lies what feels acutely to me like her true self. I do not understand why I am barred from this, least of all since my intentions revolve around her happiness and well-being. Time moves on, and soon Sashel bears three cubs, Nos bears two, and Hrau just one. She now has eyes only for little Carol. 
I understand why she dotes on the youngster, of course. Her dreamy grace and precociousness are a potent combination. There is one moment I hold on to in my mind, more precious than any other. I'm sitting by the fire, going over tomorrow night's story in my head. My six cubs play around me. Nos weaves a blanket. Sashel teaches her youngest about meat preservation. Prow repairs a skirt. Nobody cries. It is a moment of pure balance. After that, the balance is flung aside. Prow loses Carol in the forest. And when I find my wife, she is staggering, filthy, half-mad, her eyes scanning about uselessly. She's wandering leopard territory and in terrible danger. Yet, after all the reports of her delirium filtered back, still part of me wished never to find her. I hold her shoulders and then draw her to me, remembering what it was to be her rock, a stable, fixed point she could depend on. Only now, a knife pierces at my heart when I think of our cub. I cannot be a rock. I'm bleeding too deeply. She is cold and shaking and I encircle her. I harden myself further, focusing on the natural order of things, retreating to my shamanic role. For this, I must set the bleeding aside. I must be better than that. The nights draw on and despite my sacrifice, despite my offers of stability and a tomorrow with a purpose, she grows ever more distant. In place of the sadness, something else is beginning to grow inside me. It is fury, laced with a bitter, venomous resentment that fills me with further shame. It is directed at her, not simply for losing Carol, but in her despair, she has deliberately lost herself in the process. I have nobody wiser than myself to ask about this terrible situation. I work towards unpicking that fury and directing it elsewhere. You have been listening to Tiger's Eye, written and edited by Alex Shaw, with a full cast. Hucker, performed by Spencer Lieb. Brask, performed by Alex Shaw. The main theme was Agent in Shanghai, composed by 1M1 Music of Shockwave Sound. Long Note 3 and Whimsy Groove, performed by Kevin McLeod of Incombatech.com, whom I helped support via Patreon. Many soundscapes by Tabletop Audio, whom I also help support via Patreon. Our special Patreon sponsors and contributors this month were Ian and Megan Hopwood, Joel Robinson, Russell Osborne, Nick Grugin, Mark Lutch, David Garcia Abril, Maureen Foley, Ben Hayes, Stefan Gardinia, Kieran Datchler, Lorraine Chisham, 
Livio de la Cruz, Scott Cordzine, Dan Mayer, and Erish Travers. New Century Book 2 Secret Rooms is now available alongside the Cartographer's Handbook on the Kindle Store. An enthusiastic rating and review, and that's even if you got your identical ebook as a Patreon bonus, would of course, as always, be greatly appreciated. And you'll hear more from Haka next week in the countdown to episode 25, which will be the grand finale of Tiger's Eye. Thank you.